We have a, a very um, great privilege, I believe, uh, to welcome um, a son of Center Point's home. Um, Stephen Tyra found Jesus Christ here as a 17-year-old, enjoyed our uh, student ministries, attended here while he was working his undergraduate work at UC Davis, uh, and then completing that, he was uh, served here on a college ministry staff, uh, worked in that program, and worked with a number of students, and then um, did his uh, graduate work in uh, uh, Fuller Theological Seminary, and he's now at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, where he's working on his uh, PhD in Reformation Studies, in particular on Calvin. And yesterday, a number of us had a three-hour seminar on Calvin, and at the end of it, it felt like we were there for 10 minutes. Just an incredible experience. Uh, so this morning, we get a blessing on top of yesterday, and that is to have Stephen back with us. Uh, so would you give a, a great center point welcome to Stephen Tyra. Well, good morning. It is good to be home. Uh, I may seem familiar to some of you. As Pastor Jim said, years ago, I was the director of college ministry here at Center Point. And since then, I have entered a PhD program uh, at Baylor University uh, in church history. I have a passion for Christian education, for sharing with Christians the rich and inspiring, but also sometimes sobering and challenging history of Christianity throughout the centuries, which is why I was thrilled when Pastor Jim in your session invited me yesterday to come out and lead that seminar on John Calvin, as well as share with you this morning. Well, it so happens that March is a significant month for those who study Calvin and the Reformation in France, which are my own budding specialties. March 1st, 1562, witnessed a tragedy that would shape the history of Christianity, not only in the French kingdom, but arguably across the Western world. It began simply enough. On Sunday, a large congregation of French Protestants, or Huguenots as they were known, gathered together for worship. They met in a barn within the walls of the town of Vassy in northeastern France, which I've marked for you roughly up on the map on the screen They had to meet in such a humble place because Protestantism was officially condemned in the Roman Catholic kingdom, though in 1562, the Huguenots were living in an uneasy truce with the authorities. The service conducted in Vassy that day would have struck you in many ways as familiar. There would have been preaching in the language of the people, which is always a hallmark of reformed piety. There would, of course, been the Lord's Supper celebrated, which we know from the records, which is not surprising because Calvin and therefore many Huguenots thought the Lord's Supper ought to be celebrated every single week. But what would have drawn you in the barn doors, what would have brought you into the worship of that congregation might have been the singing. You see, French Protestants, Huguenots, were famous or perhaps infamous for their particular style of musical worship. Entering, you wouldn't have heard Latin hymns or chants as in the great churches of Paris. Still less would you see anything or hear anything like our modern worship sets or praise songs. Instead, the worshipers would be joined together in that barn singing God's word. Specifically, they would be singing the Psalms. Psalm singing was so central to reformed devotion that the French crown had outlawed the practice in public since 1558. 
No matter the the French Psalters, the French books of Psalms that Calvin, Theodore Beza, and other Reformed leaders had translated and set to music, continued to pour across the border from Geneva into France and became one of the century's best sellers. To sing a psalm in the language of the people, to sing a psalm in your own language, was an act of sedition. It was to make yourself a rebel. And there was certainly a rebelliousness of a certain sort animating the Huguenot in the barn that day. Or perhaps we should say it was a fiery faith. Their psalm singing was so boisterous, so loud, that they managed to attract the attention of perhaps the last person in France that an evangelical might hope to meet. Francois, the Duke of Guise. This powerful lord was an ardent Roman Catholic and had long advocated for a much harsher policy towards the Huguenot than the crown had adopted so far. He was also a close advisor to King Charles IX, who at that moment was all of 12 years old. And so you can imagine that the duke had quite a bit of influence on policy. And in God's wise providence, the duke had chosen just that Sunday to pass through Vasi with a large band of his personal soldiers. What happened next was as predictable as it was tragic. Francois, alerted by the loud singing of the psalms, ordered his troops to investigate. There was a scuffle at the door as the duke's men tried to force their way into the congregation. Francois then ordered the soldiers to open fire on the gathered worshipers, though, to be fair, he later claimed it's because somebody threw a rock at him and he had been provoked. But they opened fire, gunpowder is a thing in the 16th century, and when the smoke had cleared, dozens of Huguenots lay dead including women and children. This massacre at Vassy was instantly publicized uh, through illustrations, through pamphlets. It became famous and infamous throughout Europe almost at once, and it galvanized feelings on both sides of the religious divides. Francois was hailed as a hero back in the Catholic stronghold of Paris, while in the South, which was the Protestant uh, heartland in France, the Protestant nobles prepared themselves for battle. By month's end, civil war had broken out across the country, the first in the so-called wars of religion that would devastate France and leave the Huguenot minority um, ultimately driven into exile and nearly exterminated by the end of the 17th century, by the end of the following century. As the spark that lit the powder keg, Vasi has often been studied as a pivotal event in European history. But this morning, I want to remember those Calvinists in the barn as epitomizing a certain kind of Christian faith, a faith that is bold, a faith that is fiery, a faith that is maybe even just a wee bit rebellious, but even more, a faith that is honest with itself and with God, a faith that is not unacquainted with heartache and suffering. This faith was not unique to 16th century Huguenot. It was the faith that they had learned from Scripture. Indeed, that they had sung from Scripture. It is the faith that we encounter in the Psalms. And it's to the Psalms that we will turn this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Psalm 130. I will be reading the whole text. So I say to you, hear the word of God. Out of the depths, I cried to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? 
but with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Thanks be to God, for this is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer now as we enter into God's word? Lord, we thank you for the Psalms. We thank you that in them we find a mirror of our soul, an anatomy of our soul, in which each of the emotions, each of the experiences we might undergo in this life are expressed for us. Thank you for teaching us how to pray, because left to our own devices, we don't even know how to do that. Thank you for providing prayers for us to give voice to our deepest cries. We pray that Psalm 130 would be that voice for us this morning. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it's no doubt my training as a historian. But when I approach a difficult scripture like this one, before determining what it means for us, I want to know what it has meant. How have Christians throughout the ages wrestled with this text? How have they wrestled with God here? I think that's a good practice for all of us, not just for historians. To remember whenever we open up the Bible that we are not the first to have read it. And truth be told, we're often not the wisest or the most spiritually mature to have read it. The saints in ages past have much to teach us, and it is certainly true in this case. Psalm 130, in its original setting, in its Old Testament setting, belonged to a group known as the Psalms of Ascent. These were hymns or traveling songs that faithful Israelites would sing together as they ascended the hill of Jerusalem on their way to make a sacrifice in the temple or keep one of the festivals. Psalm 130, in other words, is a song for pilgrims on the way, pilgrims seeking the face of God which makes the opening verse all the more interesting. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. We may imagine pilgrims journeying to worship God as in a celebratory mood, as cheerful. After all, that's how American evangelicals expect and even demand our own worship songs to sing, or our own worship services to run, rather, and worship songs to sing, frankly. A few minutes ago, we had to endure that bane of introverts everywhere, the church greeting time. (laughs) You probably said something like, good morning, how are you? We do not expect the other person to answer, how am I? Like absolute crap. My whole life is falling apart. We would be taken aback. We wouldn't know how to respond. Worship is supposed to be cheerful. The pilgrim in Psalm 130 is far from cheerful. He utters a cry from the depths or from the deeps. His feet might be shuffling up Jerusalem's hill, but in his heart he has sunk down into a dark pit. When Martin Luther translated this psalm into a German hymn, he titled it, From the Depths of Woe. And I think that captures the proper spirit. The reasons for the pilgrim's woe are not fully spelled out, but he admits that the cause is, at least in part, his sin. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand, he cries. 
True, he goes on to say that, but with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. However, in my opinion, the NIV lets us down here. The verse really ought to read, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Evangelicals today often pit the fear of God against the gospel. But in truth, nothing could be further from the truth. Fear is for the saved. Only those whose sins are forgiven truly fear God. Because they have tasted his awesome and terrible holiness. The holiness that made their sin such a deadly matter in the first place. Psalm 130 is a song for those who fear God's wrath against their sin and yet know at the same time that God is the only one who can deliver them. That is certainly how the historic church has understood it. I said a moment ago that our mothers and fathers in the faith have much to teach us, and that's so even when we judge them to have made mistakes. Psalm 130's own pilgrimage through church history has been a fascinating one. During the medieval period, the scripture came to play a key role in the office for the dead, or funerals. It was something that everyone would encounter sooner or later, whether you were the person who's dead or you have someone who's died. It was something that everyone would encounter sooner or later. And the psalm's opening verse, De profundis clamave ad te domine, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord, was heard as the voice of a Christian soul who had just departed this life. You notice on the screen how prominent it is in the liturgy. It's the highlighted portion there. And that opening cry was heard as the cry of a Christian soul. You see, medieval Christians knew that this psalm spoke of a pilgrimage of ascent. And yet they didn't think that it meant a journey, a physical journey, to a city in the Middle East, Jerusalem, at least not ultimately. Rather, it described the greatest pilgrimage of all, the pilgrimage of the Christian soul upward into heaven, which may sound appealing, unless you've read your Dante or know something about how medieval Christians imagined the afterlife. You see, getting to heaven in the Middle Ages was no walk in the park. In truth, it was a walk through fire, the fires of purgatory, to be precise. This middle place was thought to be a sort of transition between heaven and hell. And according to authorities no less than Thomas Aquinas, the great theologian, it was located deep beneath the earth. It was a sort of temporary hell whose fires purged Christian souls of their remaining sins. And once purged, they could then enter into heaven and the presence of God, refined like gold in a furnace. All the souls in purgatory would be saved. That's important to understand. Yet they would only be saved after a long and fiery trial. Purgatory was a place of deep suffering and deep repentance over sin. It was the profunda or the deeps of which Psalm 130 spoke. And yet, purgatory was also a place of hope. For didn't the pilgrim also declare that, I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning? more than watchmen for the morning, and that the Lord will redeem Israel from all their sins. Someday the trial would be at an end. The fires would cool, and the morning of God's presence would dawn. That was what Psalm 130 meant to medieval Christians. So what are we, as Reformed Christians today, to make of all this? 
It may be tempting for us simply to dismiss the medieval interpretation entirely. After all, haven't we Protestants rejected, renounced purgatory in all its works? Rejected it as a uh, fiction, unsupported by scripture, and even contrary to the gospel of grace that we all believe. Well, as Treebeard says in The Lord of the Rings, not so hasty, hobbits. We ought to slow down and appreciate the real wisdom shown by our medieval mothers and fathers. They understood that sin was a deadly, serious matter, that it required deep repentance. They knew that it was a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God and to come into his holy presence, that God is a consuming fire. The need to pursue holiness was for them real and urgent. And for my part, I will take their urgency over our modern apathy any day. We tend to shrug at sin, to make light of it. We would do well to be instructed here. And yet the greatest lesson that these Christians of the past have to teach us is even more profound. They have a truth that we often forget and sometimes even outright deny. The truth is this, that our journey to God, our pilgrimage upward, requires suffering. That to journey to God, we must suffer. And more, that suffering and trial can be a means by which God purifies his people and prepares them for his holy presence. It's true that Reformed Christians have rejected purgatory in the sense that it was taught in the Middle Ages as a specific place under the earth where souls are held. And for good reason. Such a geography of the afterlife is unsupported by Scripture. But that doesn't mean that evangelicals, at least historically, have rejected purgatory altogether. Don't ask me. Ask the first evangelicals themselves. In his later years, Martin Luther often commented on medieval beliefs concerning purgatory and how they related to his understanding of the gospel, that we are saved through faith in Christ alone. In 1537, Luther had this to say. This purgatory that we teach is no fiction, as theirs is. Neither do we assert it on the basis of human opinions, even of the fathers. Rather, it is the thing itself, and in utterly serious manner, to those who, along with the prophets and all the saints, have learned in Christ's school the meaning of this hard saying, the Lord leads down to hell and back up again. He kills and makes alive, which is a quote from 1 Samuel. Luther hints here at a different kind of purgatory than was taught by the medieval church, one that all of Christ's saints, all of God's people, learn in Christ's school. When the Lord brings it upon his people, when Jesus brings it upon you and me, it often feels like he's leading us down into hellfire, like he's killing us. It is the profunda, the deeps. And yet Christ's purpose is not to leave us in that pit, but to bring us back up again, now changed, transformed, purified like gold in a furnace. Well, Luther, as was his habit, chose not to expand on his comments here, leaving their meaning a bit mysterious and ambivalent. Fortunately, John Calvin, as was his habit, spelled out his views in precise detail. Calvin, in his commentary on Psalm 130, includes a history of interpretation that covers much of what we've talked about this morning. 
Why ever do they murmur it for the dead, he writes, referring to the psalm's use in the medieval church. From the moment that this psalm, 130, was seized for the use of dead shades, it was generally believed among the people that it had no use for the living, and thus an incomparable treasure perished from the world. What is this treasure? Well, Calvin goes on. And here is the true use of the psalm's teaching. Christians, even when they are plunged into the deepest abyss, all the same, should not doubt that God's hand will lead them up again. God will find the hidden ways as often as there is need. Thus let the faithful hold it as certain that whenever the church may be afflicted, God will be their deliverer. Calvin is clear in his rejection of purgatory as a location in the afterlife. He scorns the habit of murmuring this psalm for shades, as he, put it, as he puts it. But that doesn't imply that Christians can avoid the deeps. The abyss, you see, is not a place we enter after we die, as the medieval church believed. It is something that we can expect to experience, or perhaps are experiencing right now, in this life. This life is our purgatory. As Calvin says in another place, Gold is tested by fire in two ways. First, it is purged from its dross, and then a judgment is made concerning its purity. Both of these ways of testing relate very well to our faith. For since so many dregs of unbelief reside in us, the dross of our faith is purged as we are forged in the furnace of God so that it might be pure and shining before him. At the same time, a trial is made of it, whether or not it may be genuine. For just as silver is not honored before it has been purged, so too, the scripture says, our faith is to be honored and crowned before God once it has been rightly tested. Purgatory. The furnace of God, where he forges us into the sort of women and men who can stand in his presence and inherit his kingdom, is not a place we go after we die. It is this life. If you call yourself a Christian, if you confess Christ, you are in that furnace as we speak. That's why whenever Roman Catholic friends ask me, why did the reformers reject purgatory? I tell them they didn't reject it. They relocated it. <laughs> the gospel that was reclaimed in the 16th century is indeed that we are saved through faith alone. But don't think for a minute that faith will leave you alone. As we cling to Christ our Savior, we are changed transformed as Jesus takes us by the hand and leads us down into the deep places of this life, into the furnace where he forges us and reforms us into the sort of women and men who can stand in his presence. And you know what? Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's hard to know whether the trial we are experiencing is God's furnace or simply hellfire. Sometimes it's hard to believe that the hand who led us down into the deeps will also lead us back up again. It's in those moments that we truly understand the pilgrim's cry. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? This morning, I don't know what sort of deeps you find yourself in. Perhaps you are suffering the consequence of some sin. You got caught doing what you shouldn't have been doing, you got, look, got caught looking at something you shouldn't have been looking at, and now you must leave, live with the fallout. Maybe, on the other hand, you are suffering some injustice. Psalm 130 speaks of, uh, puts the emphasis on sin and confession, but other psalms 
uh, speak of undeserved suffering, suffering that's not your fault. Lord my God, if I have done this and there is guilt on my hands, the prophet says in Psalm 7, then let my enemies triumph, before going on to complain that he hasn't deserved the suffering that has come upon him. Many of the fiery trials we undergo in this life have no easy or direct connection to our actions. So this morning, some financial disaster may have befallen you, though you have acted responsibly. Maybe you've received a diagnosis that fills you with fear. Maybe someone close to you, a loved one, has betrayed you. If any of that sounds familiar, I have good news for you. God has thrown you into the fire. And though the reasons are often hidden from us, we know by faith that those who are cast into God's furnace are being forged into shining new creatures who one day will reflect his own holiness. To use Luther's phrase, God leads us down into hell, into the deeps, only to lead us back up again. God kills us in order to make us alive. And when we emerge from that experience, we will be changed. We will be reformed. Again, don't take my word for it. Don't even take the reformer's word for it. Listen to the apostle Peter. In a passage much loved by suffering Christians throughout the centuries, Peter writes, In his great mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who, uh, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Our pilgrimage towards God often bears us through fiery trials, Peter says, is often a purgatory. And yet we do not suffer without hope. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see that the same God who leads down to hell also has the power to bring us up again. And he will bring us up again when the morning of God's salvation is revealed. This is not necessarily a cheerful gospel, but it is a strong one. Strong enough even for the deep places of this life. It is also the gospel that is articulated in the cries and prayers of the Psalter. You may recall the story I told at the beginning about the Huguenot worshipers in Vassy. Is it any wonder that these French Calvinists placed the Psalms at the center of their worship and devotion? I have called their faith fiery, and it was fiery because it was tested by fire over the course of two centuries. A persecuted minority that suffers fire and sword needs more than cheerfulness. They need to lament, to rage, to cry out from the depths to God, even as they rejoice in the hope of their salvation. I wonder what evangelical services today would look like if we consciously tried to embody the patterns of worship God has given us in the Psalms. What would your own prayer life look like if you tried to pray like the pilgrims in the Psalms pray? Those are good questions to ponder. And as we do, I have good news for you. The same good news that our mothers and fathers in the Middle Ages, in the Reformation, and in indeed every time and place have believed. That in Christ, our suffering is not meaningless. 
that the road to redemption runs through even the deepest places in this life. Now we are pilgrims, all of us. But someday, the journey will be done. The morning will dawn, and we will shine with the light of God's holiness like gold refined in a furnace. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for the strong good news that you have given us. A good news that doesn't merely um, comfort us, doesn't merely make us cheerful, but also strengthens us and through which we know that even in the deepest places of life, you are there. That indeed sometimes you lead us into those deep places and you also have the power to bring us up again. We would pray this morning as the pilgrims pray in the Psalms. Teach us to pray like that. And when we do, when we cry out to you from the depths, answer us as you answered them long ago. We know you will answer us in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.